0: So I'm James Kerr, Senior Policy Advisor at the University of Liverpool.
1: And I'm Ellie Settman, the Senior Academic Developer at the University of Liverpool, and you are listening to the Academy's Developing Practice Podcast.
2: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Academy's Developing Practice Podcast. In this episode, we chat with James Coe, a senior policy advisor, and Dr Ellie Satnin, a senior academic developer, both from the University of Liverpool. We discussed the student success framework and how it has been embedded across the institution. We also talked about the Pedagogic Research Conference coming up on the 19th of January 2022, which will focus on the same theme. We hope you enjoy.
3: James and Ellie, we're really pleased to be speaking to you today. We're delighted to be hearing more about the Student Success Framework at the University of Liverpool and the upcoming Pedagogic Research Conference. But before we get started, it would be great if you could tell us a little bit about your background and your roles at the university today. So James, if we start with you.
0: Thanks, Alex. I'm really excited to be here to talk about all things Student Success Framework. So I'm James, I'm the Senior Policy Advisor at the University of Liverpool. Which means, in the simplest terms, I spend my days thinking of what's the great things we should be doing in higher education policy and what are the bad things coming along that we should be avoiding. I prosecute that work in three ways. I advise the Vice Chancellor and her senior leadership team. I work on projects with a cross-institutional focus and I engage with civic stakeholders and MPs. So that's my job in a nutshell.
3: Fantastic, thank you. And Ellie, how about yourself?
1: And yeah, thanks for for having us on. Um, So I'm a senior academic developer in the academy. Um, So my remit is to support academic colleagues across the institution to develop their practice in some way. Um, So my kind of portfolio work is is really diverse. I work with lots of different projects, teaching on cap, developing CPD events, um, establishing networks, but Specifically relevant for today's podcast, I guess, is a couple of things. Um, I'm working on setting up support and and development um, materials for academic advisors, which is clearly tied into the student success framework. And also, um, I'm on the organising committee for the pedagogic research conference, which is coming up in January. And again, we've chosen the student success framework as the, the the focus of that conference. So. So are the, the two key
2: things um, for today's session. Brilliant. Thanks both of you. Um, just before we get going, I just thought, thought I'd quickly mention, James, I saw on LinkedIn that you have a book out at the moment. So I'd like to quickly ask you about your book if that's okay.
0: Yeah, thanks, Matt. And thanks for getting in before I shamelessly plugged it myself <laughs> later on uh, in the discussion. Yes, so my book, The New University, Local Solutions to a Global Crisis, came out last week. And it's interesting and linked to the student success framework. And what I'm making the argument is universities did some amazing things during COVID around student support, how they invest their cash, basically how when we focus on some enormous social challenges, universities can generally change the world. And I am, you know, naturally optimistic, but optimistic about the future of universities. So my argument in the book is if we capture that energy, if we capture the attention we paid to students' experiences and successes and take that into the future. Will become an ever more important and indelible part of society. And I hope it, you know, as ever with the first drafts of history, there will be bits that are wrong. But I hope it captures an enthusiasm at the moment when I think we have a chance to uh, really make an even larger difference. But, uh, thanks for that, Matt. That was a very that's, kind question to start off with. That's, I'm a very kind guy. Um, I think that, see, that
2: links really, really nicely, doesn't it? Because obviously the focus for our discussion today is the student su- success framework. So just building on what you've just mentioned there about your your book and about the framework, can you just go into a little bit of detail about what that framework is and how it came to be developed?
0: Yeah, of course I can. So, I mean, I'm assuming, Matt, Alex, Ellie, that you went to university at some point in the past. That's why you work here. But the reasons why people go to university, I think are interesting, complicated, and aren't always clear when someone arrives at the door. So I went to university because I wanted to study a subject I cared about, but I also wanted to get a great job at the end. I wanted to meet people. I want to live in a city i would not been to before. And what the student success framework is, is it's a more realistic acknowledgement that although an academic experience is always going to be our core business, students' view of success is more complicated and multifaceted than that. And, you know, I think we're all here because if we believe university is anything, it is a tacit promise between us and our students that li- their lives will be better by choosing to come here than if they choose not to. So, what the student success framework does is it looks at three elements of what it means to be a successful student. It looks at academic success and what that means in order to get a good degree and in order to thrive in the subject they do. It looks at personal success, which is about not only a student's happiness, well-being, and sense of belonging but having Liverpool graduates who feel like they can go out in the world and make a difference. And finally, it looks at future success, which is not only about getting a great job, but it's feeling like students have agency in deciding their own future. It is nothing less than an ambitious attempt to coalesce the resources we have across the university into prosecuting those aims. The idea is that when somebody reads it and picks it up, it is broad enough so they think, oh, in my team, this relates to some stuff I'm doing but perhaps there's other ways I can use my resources. So to give you a couple of examples, I did a session with the employability team who were saying, we do loads of great employability stuff, but can we signpost towards sport in order to improve a student's personal success? I've done some work um, with other groups of staff, particularly out in faculties who are saying, oh, well, we understand good academic uh, qualifications, but can we look at this for different student demographics using data we've got because these students have different needs. So it is simultaneously a starting point to have more nuanced conversations in our teams about how do we support student success. And it is ambitious framework that says our students contain multitudes and our work should reflect that. And yeah, I think it's just a properly exciting way for us to start thinking about student success and genuinely lead the sector in it.
2: That's a really interesting point you just made there, James. Um, we saw the student um, success framework in the academy. We saw that document and we, we were like, OK, how do we how do we fit our bits into into that and then it then the light bulbs you know switched on quite quickly then it because our purpose is to enable the university and the teams within the university to meet its purpose so we will we're always sort of one step back so when we see these sort of high level documents um and which are you know very focused towards student success it's it can be sometimes difficult for for those behind the scenes teams to apply their sort of Apply their practice to it, yeah. Um, but for, I mean, for us, we we could
0: quickly see that. Have you found any any teams who have said similar things? I mean, it's it's such a good question, that. and Like the reason this is a framework and not a strategy is an acknowledgement that you know we're a university of people who work with students all the time, and people are aware of the problems in their areas and the best way to solve them. So rather than being a strategy and saying, "Look, here's a significant problem. In ten years, we'll go and do this, and then can you put the resource towards it?" it should be broad enough for people to say, look, here's some broad objectives we've got, you know, so that might be around um, degree attainment gaps. And then in your area, you'll know how to resolve it. So to give you another example, we recently launched the Student Success Innovation Fund, which provides funding to professional services teams, schools and faculties, to close Black, Asian, minority, ethnic student experience award um, and outcomes gaps. And the reason we've done it that way is to say, look, as an institution, we can provide funding for programs. Your faculty or your uh, professional service area can provide data analysis, but ultimately, it's you who have the experience in working with those groups of students. So you use the funding on the way you think's best. And the result of that is we've ended up with an enormous range of programs, from things like um, business development schemes, a multivariated analysis of um, different student demographics as relates to attainment. We've had a scheme to look at assessment methodologies and how they impact different groups of students. And for me, that is the power of the framework. And then what it says is, there are some broad areas. We want your creativity to use the most of the institutional resource. And I think the example with the academy is the right one, Matt, where it's like, we take a step back, we provide you with all the opportunities to succeed with this. But ultimately, we respect your expertise as the people who work with students every day. And I think it's when you get that top and bottom relationship between institutions, faculty, schools, teachers, students, that we make the most effective change for the people who we're here to work for.
1: I guess I my little corner of the academy, we've kind of had some interesting conversations around that. and um, because our participants in our programs are also technically students, although they wouldn't necessarily see themselves as students, they're academic members of staff who are doing a postgraduate program in, in teaching. But it's kind of allowed us to open up some conversations with them about. You know what they do with their students but then seeing it from a student's perspective that kind of weird put yourself in in your students shoes and it's been really interesting to see those conversations um develop and and i think that framework has given us an additional lens through which to have those conversations which has been really interesting yeah we can talk about you know what does success mean to you in this program and and like you say Our staff are just as multifaceted as our our students are and their motivations are, are just as diverse. So yeah, it's been really great to have those conversations.
0: I think that's such an interesting point. And like, for me, I think the conversations between teams is where we see some of the greatest value, is that starting point for staff members. And yeah, some of the issues that we're thinking about, it's like, you know, what does a great employability offer for PhD students look like? And how does that link to student success? if we have postgraduates who are only with us for one year, how do we support really effective transitions into the university when we don't have them for as much time? Um, How do you support the well-being of PhD students who are simultaneously both staff and students quite often and work across those areas? It's like, you know, the conversations which we know are going on all over the place brought into a single area, and I think that's going to be a really, really useful tool for us. But yeah, there's loads of challenges. It's how we coalesce activity together.
3: And Ellie, one of the key areas of your work, I believe, is with academic advisors who are one group of staff who are really working hard to kind of embed this framework and support students to um, realise and achieve their own version of success. Can you tell us about some of the work that they're doing um, in terms of this kind of providing a unified vision of success for a diverse student body?
1: Yeah, it's a challenging one, that that academic advisor role. as most academic advisors will tell you they don't necessarily get given a lot of time and credit for that role and yet it's it's a hugely important role for the success of the student um, having that one academic who actually cares about them and knows about them as an individual and, and their trajectory so it, it's kind of building into those those meetings between the advisor and the student. Um, opening up those conversations and i think this framework is a way of, of opening up those conversations the kind of prompts for the questions you might ask the student to articulate and um, in terms of their motivations and their kind of um, reasons for being here or where they want to go in the future and um, and i think you mentioned in the beginning james that students don't necessarily always know this themselves when they arrive um, and the academic advisor kind of some of them will say, you know, I'm not qualified to give careers advice, or I'm not qualified to, to give personal advice, you know, I'm just an academic. But it's not so much about giving the right advice or, or messages, it's about asking the right kinds of questions. And I think that's where this framework can can open up for that. Um, and so my, um, my role within this academic advisor kind of what I would like to see is developing tools um, for academic advisors to have those conversations. i giving them the confidence to have those conversations um, and, and hopefully also push to give them the space and time to do so. You know, if, that's a challenge.
0: if I could add two things to that, because I think that's that sort of expectations piece from students and how you support academic advisors too, I think is really important because, you know, if you go from a school or a college, you're used to quite tight relationships and university is really different about what that looks like. And there's there's two things I always think about. So the Millennium Cohort Study, which tracks a a demographically representative group of people born millennium about their hopes and ambitions, 97% of mothers, whether they went to university themselves, wanted their children to go to university. And on average, that same cohort spent 15 hours a week doing homework with their children in order for them to go into higher education. And I think ultimately, you know, our success in supporting students through things like academic advisors is not only a personal success for those students, but it's about a wider success of what the university sector is about. And I think it genuinely gives us such an exciting opportunity to lead the sector with, you know, the staff we've got, because ultimately our students love our staff. Our NSS demonstrates that again and again, our students like being here. And the trick is how do we support them in order to support students better, which I think is a brilliant point. I think, you know, and then the second part of like, why are students here and why do they come? I mean, as I said at the start, so I started university 10 years ago this week, which feels like good timing in order to be doing uh, this podcast. And I went here because I sort of picked the subject I was good at at college. I liked Liverpool and I had a vague idea I wanted to do something with English. And that was basically it. But what the Student Success framework does is it gives students a tool to actually, here's a set of expectations the university set out how can I work with my academics in order to achieve the aims there? So it's that reciprocal relationship that gives them a tool to, um, you know, I suppose not hold us to account, but to be more active participants in their own success. And I think that's a really, really exciting opportunity. Brilliant. So that sounds like a two-way document then. So I, I
2: really like the thing that Ellie just said about asking the right questions. It sounds to me as though the student success framework could almost be used as as for students to say, this is what we should be getting. And for the staff to, to say, are we doing this? And can I use this document to ask these questions of the of the student? Are we seeing that happening already?
1: I think we are to some extent. And, and I'm sure there are pockets of excellence practice across the institution, and there are pockets where maybe less of that happens. And I don't want to risk pointing fingers at, anyone. <laughs> I shouldn't be pointing fingers at, so I, I think there's room to improve, but I think we are doing that in, in some ways,
0: yeah. in, in different ways, in different ways. I think there's, there's like a couple of practical bits to it. So one of the things I'd like to see colleagues use as the framework is to say, here's some broad expectations. Do we have the data in place that allows us in our school faculty professional service area to understand this? Um, are we providing sufficient support, advice, information to staff who are ultimately charged with the delivering the ambitions of the framework? Have we put significant time aside in order to have those practical discussions of, okay, what's this mean to us? So it should be a useful starting point for some of those hygiene factors. And I think the other way around is really interesting because like, ultimately we can't support students as effective as we want unless we know it is what their ambitions are. And this is the whole point of it. So, you know, if all of our students are coming in and saying, oh, I really want to go and work from the big four county firms, that really changes our approach to oh, all of our students are overwhelmingly wanting to go and be PhDs. So it should be that another tool that gives the information insights to get the best of what our students want out of it. And ultimately, that's why we're here.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I really like is one of the key strands that are in the framework, which is the theme of personal success. And I think it actually says that all students will experience a welcoming and supportive environment which prioritises wellbeing and belonging. So what are some of the things that we're achieving this
0: at policy level, James? There's a few bits. And I think, you know, increasingly, I think well-being, sense of belonging, sort of happiness at universities is an area that's getting increased attention. So, you know, on a practical level, thinking about what does that welcoming part look like? You know, we are talking the week after welcome week, where there's been a significant amount of activity going there to welcome students to Liverpool. I think, particularly in the context of COVID-19, where students have, you know, our second-year students by and large might never have been on campus. That's a really unusual situation to be in for any cohort. So I think, in the context of COVID-19, there's some really fundamental questions of how do you induct a cohort back into a new mode of learning? What does that look like? How do you provide support? Because ultimately, unlike any other cohorts, their learning experience has been digital-first rather than physically first so they might have the same learning experience but actually their sense of belonging to their cohort is very different they've set up new relationships maybe they're people in their halls or whatever so i think it's a really important question there i think secondly they just haven't seen as much of us for very understandable reasons by us i mean staff colleagues etc and for all the benefits of online it is a very different way to do all the collaborative work that we think is valuable you know whether that's developing pedagogy, whether that's those academic advisor relationships, which Ellie's spoken about. So I think there's a really big question of how to do that. And I think thirdly, an area that is increasingly important and interesting is how do we support transitions for international students who, you know, again, have had a really difficult time, whether it's quarantine, once coming to the UK, whether it's sort of that sense of isolation, most of the students have been at home. And how do we support transitions for PhD students who've been learning in very, very different circumstances coming onto campus and maybe doing some teaching so i think you're completely right to raise it Matt, as that sort of personal uh, element i think we're doing loads i think you know mental health support has never been more in demand some of those activities to welcome as i walked on campus today there's a new running track on campus there is new basketball hoops there's additional tennis table tables i know the guild have loads planned so there's loads going on but i think of all the things that i think the, the framework should be doing is in the context of covid 19 what does personal relationship look like so I think that's what we've all missed with one another
1: and I'm seeing that from working with academic colleagues as well that the things they're interested in researching are exactly that the relationship building and um, whether that was the experience over the past couple of years and um, you know moving online and how how to develop relationships online and um, or like you said the concern for how do we induct people back on campus now so yeah, but staff as well are, are, this is at the forefront of their mind of, of how we build those relationships.
0: Um, and are you finding, Ellie, that things feel a bit different now to they did sort of in the height of COVID in terms of that relationship need for staff? Because I feel like people are going through peaks and troughs of, I want to see everybody and I want to see nobody.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I yes. Yeah. I, a year ago, a lot of the conversations were around frustrations with blank screens and students not talking and how do we get them to engage with us um, and and I think people are now a bit sort of apprehensive about going back but at the same time also really looking forward to, to having in-person conversations again and kind of being able to have that eye contact with, with students and, and making those real connections.
0: That's so interesting because I Yeah. When I look around the sector, I think one of the interesting things is all the people who can access resources who might've been excluded from before. So whether, you know, it's because I have a disability and physically getting to lectures and, you know, getting there is very difficult, but having something that's recorded and I can watch back and, you know, I can spend time over it. I think it's been a real boon for access. And I think it's a really interesting balance, particularly thinking of the personal success you mentioned, Matt, of how do you retain that element of contact, which I think is good for all of us versus keeping the best of the elements of digital connectivity that have really, really benefited some people. And, you know, it's a huge challenge for all of us. And it goes right to the heart of the pedagogical question of, I think there's some sense of, you know, apprehensiveness about what hybrid learning means in the sector. But I think framing it in a way of it's the best of the stuff that's gone before with the connection that we think is all important for our health would be a brilliant way to start conceptualising what personal success could look like.
1: And and, and that is the, the direction I see. The people who are engaging in pedagogic research that, that I get to interact with, that's the direction they're going. Is Last year it was about how do we get, how do we make anything work online? And this year is about how do we take the lessons from the last couple of years and, and keep the best, what was it that worked that we want to keep? So yeah, that's exactly the way it's going.
0: And like particularly on that sort of on that student transition point, I know I keep banging on about this, but I think it's really important. So we know that school children got their highest level grades ever, which, you know, my sort of personal view is that like, given we had the fewest ever students drop out last year according to student loan data, it suggests that teachers are doing a reasonable job of assessing their abilities. But one of the questions is, okay, well, if I get I think it was forty nine percent of students going ASRNA, RNA, that's fine to come in but what if the bit I missed was like a stats module and I'm now studying economics? Like, even if I've got notionally an AR and A star, how do we support students' academic success in that field? Or, you know, that type of interaction, I think it's going to be really, really important.
3: You're right. Just talking to a friend um, earlier today and her, her child's in that cohort that if they don't have A-levels this year, she will never have sat an exam when she goes to university. So it is, it's that catch up stuff, isn't it? Of, um, the statistics module that they've missed or actually sitting in a hall and doing an exam um, which is so important so there is some work to be done around that
0: and I'd be really interested if it exerts pressure on us to examine in different ways you know it's really unusual if I, if I think about you know the history of examinations you do it all broadly similar because what you get practice has to get better at better time but when you've had a cohort that's not done exams for two years is the best way to ensure their academic success by going back to a model that they are themselves unfamiliar with. I don't, I don't know, it's not my expertise, but I suspect it'd be very different. And again, when you think about those conversations around the student success framework, I think a really good team conversation would be, what is it that students have missed that we can replicate and catch up on? What is it that isn't within our wheelhouse to do? But how can we replicate their skills by examining in different ways, by sort of understanding their abilities in different ways, And what have they gained as a benefit from two years digital connectivity? Like there can never be a cohort who has more digital skills than the one who's just come up because of everything they've been forced to do. And how do we turn that into a net benefit for our academic success rather than a, oh, actually we're going to force you to do something else.
1: And, And it's, it's already kind of, you know, those looking back at what we've learned from the past year, one of those things is what are some different ways in which we assess the academic success of students? And, you know, sitting in a room for two hours writing down whatever is in your head is maybe not the best way to assess someone's academic success. And I think this has been a real wake-up call for a lot of people. You've kind of done exams because that's what we've always done for the last 500 years, but there are other options, and the other options are actually working really well. Um, and it's been interesting to see how it's pushed people to try new things that they would ever otherwise not have tried. And also pushed forward some of the aspects of our curriculum framework, such as authentic assessments. You know, seeking an exam is not an authentic form of assessment. So it's opened up those spaces a lot more, I think. And it it I'm quite like, you know, you you pushed your book in the beginning, saying it's a really optimistic view of, of higher education. And I think hidden behind a lot of the uncertainty and the real stress that people have been under the last two years. I sense there's that little bit of optimism as well about we've seen that there's different ways of doing it and that's given an impetus to actually do things differently going forward, not just going back to the same old same end.
0: I, I think so. And I, I think part of the reason why I feel optimistic about this is because it's given people an opportunity to demonstrate different skills. So, you know, when we think about the success question, it would be very easy to be like, well, success is we get this proportion of students get a first or a two-one. Now, in a world where we know not everybody can get a first or two-one, there are versions of academic success or personal success where it's like, oh, as a, as a practitioner, I'm really good at providing digital skills and I can pass that on to my students. And that's suddenly become more important. And having students who are digital savvy are now at an advantage in where they were before. Or, you know, thinking about future skills, you know, the workplace of the future is going to look radically different because of experience with COVID. And again, the people who are skilled at remote working, working with teams from a distance, who are able to work independently as a result of their experiences here will succeed. So I think it could totally flip some of the um, traditions and preconceptions that we've had.
2: I certainly wish that uh, in my time, it was all authentic assessment and not examination because I used to fold like a pack of cards in exams and never, never did very well in an examination. It was always the... It was all the coursework was fine, but no, the examination I always fell over with that. So if only I had my time again, and but I'm not going to wish I I was a a a teenager or a young adult uh, in a pandemic. That's certainly not going to wish for because they've had a rough ride, haven't they? Um, just touching back on that um on that well being again. Can I just ask because we've got I think it must be quite easy to measure um the sort of academic success Um, but how are we really going to measure the well-being success because obviously if we're measuring it in terms of I don't know students accessing uh, services that we provide then we could we depending on how we look at that data it could say okay well you know we've got an influx of students accessing mental health um, support is that is that proof that what we're doing is right or is it actually proof that we've we've got more
0: issues it's a good question. I'll, I'll go first and offer some I swear, broad reflections on it. So there's areas where we recognize, not just here, but across the sector, there is under-reporting of student wellbeing issues. So for example, earlier this year, we launched Report and Support, which is a tool that allows students to report um, complaints of harassment or discrimination through online form, both anonymously and um, whatever, the not, whatever the opposite of not anonymously is, using their names. Um, and they can do that. And I think we recognize, and we know from research across the sector, things like racial harassment are underreported. So we would want to see an increase in those reports of harassment, and then over time, so we can identify the trends and decrease it. Things like mental health reporting across you know, the country, never mind the sector, are on the up. So you would want to see something which is contemporaneous with the issues that young people are facing. But going back to the point I was making earlier about digital accessibility, One of the things that we have found is people can access services at different times more flexible times and also throughout the year in ways that weren't possible before some of the other areas around well-being i think are slightly more difficult to measure so we want more participation in sports because all the research suggests that participating in sports and physical activity is good for well-being it's good for employability and things like if you get involved and become a team captain it's good for your employability measures so the things we're interested in is you know obviously the overall number but are the people who weren't playing sports before deciding to take it up? And that would be another good measure of wellbeing. So for example, I'm hopeless at nearly every single sport. I can't run, I can't kick, I can't throw, I can't catch, but I really enjoy it. So I think what's an interesting challenge to get someone like me to take part in a casual five-a-side team who otherwise wouldn't get picked for the first team versus the person who's coming here with athletic scholarship, who's unbelievable at sport. They probably already have quite a good level of support. But how do we get the people who otherwise wouldn't experience those benefits to take part? And then the last one I touched on is that, you know, part of this wellbeing question is a much wider one of how do we make the city and ultimately the country a vibrant, exciting place to live. So things like our commitment to sustainable development goals in itself is an expression of personal success, because without clean air, without, you know, a country that's, uh, sorry, a planet that's not going to implode in the next hundred years, it would all be a bit perfunctory. So it keeps a lot of, different threads tied together with the aim of increasing participation for those who are least likely to
1: i think i maybe also would kind of bring it back to um something you said earlier things about how this is a a broad framework kind of that you then look at individual practices or kind of local practices and, and how do we address that and um seeing as you got to promote one of your books i'll just promote one of my papers in that we just did um, a a bit of a research study looking at how writing support for PhD students can alleviate some of the anxiety and stress that PhD students feel around thesis writing and it was a very small scale um, and it was using one of these um, survey questionnaires that has a standardised set of questions that has been developed not by me but by somebody far more clever to, to try and quantify um, level a sense of, of anxiety or stress specifically related to academic writing and by having them complete that survey before attending some of these writing support sessions and again after and seeing at least a little bit of a reduction in those measures you can kind of go okay these sessions have an impact on that particular you know aspect of of being a graduate student and you could you could do similar it doesn't have to be exactly the same kind of study but looking at those small scale local interventions and then seeing do students report feeling better less stressed less anxious as a result of engaging with these Um, so i I think there's kind of yes you can look at the big measures and the big numbers and the statistics but it's also hearing from students on the ground and, and seeing those, those. You know, even if just one student has been helped, that's a step forward.
0: I think that's such an amazing example because it just encapsulates that our students have lots of different needs and wants and what they want to do with their lives and things they need support with. That can only be resolved by local analysis, support by institutional action. I think that's a, an amazing example of exactly what the framework can be used for.
3: So I guess it's examples like that, isn't it? That we need as we explore um, the impact of COVID and how the um, interventions have changed and also the student success framework. And that brings us really nicely, Ellie, to the theme for this year's annual Pedagogic Research Conference, which is taking place on Thursday, the 19th of January, 2022, and it's online. And the whole theme for that conference is student success. So can you tell us um, a bit about that conference and how colleagues could get involved?
1: yeah so the conference is a pedagogic research conference so it's a chance for colleagues who are engaged in some kind of pedagogic research to to showcase their work that's the intention and to support that community of colleagues who um, are not just teaching but are investigating teaching so it's a, a fairly small conference it's always very supportive open to anyone whether you know you are a really experienced pedagogic researcher or you're new to the game you know, this conference is for everyone, and we chose this year the focus of, of student success framework, but specifically that aspect of evaluating success. That that was the the idea for this conference was to kind of encourage colleagues who are doing pedagogic research, who are exploring aspects of practice, to evidence whether that practice is having a benefit in some way, um but with it, within that framework of the student success framework. So we have visions of, but obviously people haven't submitted their abstract yet. So we we don't know what what actual topics will be there, but we kind of envisage there being presentations around evidencing interventions in teaching that improves academic um, success, evidencing um, interventions in terms of employability and showing how that improves students' um, future success those kind of things and we will have a keynote speaker to launch the conference and who that keynote speaker is I can't confirm just yet Um, but again will be somebody speaking um, with experience of of that evidencing. success.
3: Wonderful and I'm sure there's lots of ways that our colleagues can get involved whether they're presenting their own research even if the, if that's in a very early form or um as a delegate to to learn from others can you give us a rough idea in terms of kind of the time frames of when people need to submit abstracts or sign up
1: as a delegate yep so our plan is to launch the call for abstracts um at the start of october and they'll have until christmas to to submit those abstracts or at least early december i will open for either full presentations which will be kind of 15 20 minutes um presentations and that's usually um where is somebody who has um a more advanced research project and some some actual data to present and and some conclusions and then we'll open also for emerging ideas type presentations will be either a poster or a short video um and those emerging ideas presentations so for, for anyone who has a, a starting idea for a project or some pilot data they want to, to share um, and a chance to get some feedback and some input and kind of talk through ideas. Ideas that those emerging ideas will be, so like I said, a poster or a short video, which will be made available ahead of the conference for people to, to engage with asynchronously. And then the full presentations will be live on the day and hopefully lots of opportunities for people to to find like-minded individuals and have really interesting conversations that's the idea of the conference brilliant
2: well it's been wonderful to have some time with you and hear about the student success framework um this podcast is the developing practice podcast and as a result of that we like to finish each one in the same way where our guests give us a couple of tips that listeners could reflect on in terms of their own personal practice so if you do have a couple of thoughts or tips for people Uh, regarding this topic, what would they be? Can I be greedy
0: and give you three? Sure, absolutely. So I think the power of the framework is ultimately that it provides a broad enough scope and a flexible enough application that teams can identify their own role within supporting academic, personal, and future success. So for me, I think the first tip is to get in your teams, whether that's your faculty, department, school, professional service area, to have a look and think, actually, how could this apply to what we're doing? And some of the questions to think about is, do we have the data now that allows us to understand what our students view of personal future and academic success is? Do we have an insight in how we could coalesce our existing activity to be the most of its parts? And thirdly, are there teams we need to be in touch with? I think my second tip is to spend some time talking to the students you are working with and the type of thing that Guild will work with and facilitate. Ultimately, they are the arbiters and experts in their own success. And something we get involved in. And I think thirdly, that there is an opportunity post COVID-19 to be ambitious about what we can achieve. We've sent down a really ambitious gauntlet at things like our access and participation plans that ultimately say we will have a more um, equal university, we'll have greater outcomes for different groups of students and we'll support them to what they want to achieve, all made more difficult by COVID-19 so my last tip is in having these is that let's be ambitious about what we can achieve with our students because they're certainly ambitious about that, what they want to achieve when they're with us if i give a fourth one that would be to go out and buy my book but i think that would be too shameless so i will leave it there
1: i guess i would kind of shift the focus from that that big framework down to kind of your personal practice in in reflecting on what the success look like or feel like to yourself and your student but then how do you evidence whether you're achieving that success so um and then once you have a plan for how to collect that evidence submit an abstract to the conference or come along to the conference and listen to what uh, the ways in which other people are trying to evidence good practice and and how we achieve that, that success
2: brilliant thanks for your time today guys it's been a great conversation Thanks for having us.
1: Thank you.
3: Well, I really enjoyed talking to James and Ellie about the Student Success Framework. I like what James was saying about how students want more from their university experience than just an academic qualification, that very much chimes with my experience of working with students. You mentioned how students um, are also really interested in their personal success, so how can we develop those skills in them and support them to develop those skills that will make a difference in their lives and in the world. And also students are really interested in their future success as well. So supporting students agency on how they can develop and impact their futures. This is all being built into the student success framework, which gives that kind of broad overview of the student experience. I think that's really exciting.
2: Yeah, definitely. It's it's really good to have that framework in place, isn't it? So we we can focus more holistically on these on these things for students. Um, Ellie then also talked about equipping colleagues to not particularly have all the answers for student regarding student success, but instead to equip colleagues to have those sort of conversations so they can ask the right questions. And I think that's really, really important as well. And you know, then the students can go off and explore and agree a pattern of, of their own student access that is specific to their own individual circumstances. I think that's uh, really powerful.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you'd like to take your thinking further, we've added some resources to the website on a specific podcast reading list, which you can access at liverpool.ac.uk forward slash the academy forward slash podcast. So please do check those out. It'd also be great if you let us know what you thought about the episode. You can tweet us at Live Uni Academy, and you can also find us at eLearnerMatt or at Alexandra underscore Owen on Twitter.
2: And we're really grateful for those who have taken the time to either rate or review our show in your podcast providers app so if you are an apple user please do take the time to review our show as it will help others find us bye for now